Welcome to It Could Be Said. My name is Will Calling, and welcome to my Casa Dojo house. Uh, joining me as always is Dr. Luke Middup. How are you today, uh, Luke? I'm very excited, Will. Excited slash nervous because it's less than 24 hours before Knots make their triumphant return to the EFL. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to it. Have, have, have you sent the bailiffs round to get that sign of Forrest? Yes, we have. We've put the sign back up, in fact. Do, do Forrest have a sign that kind of marks the two, three, what, the three years when they were the world's oldest football league club? Well, there's some dispute about that because Everton, Everton claimed, that, uh, t- claimed that title as well. And so did Sheffield United. So it's in dispute. Well, it's not in dispute anymore because we're back. Oh, it's in dispute with Forrest. Because he, presumably Sheffield United is based on them being like a descendant of Sheffield Football Club. No, no, no. Because Sheffield FC still exists. So it's not based on that. Okay. Um, And uh, we're also joined by Simon Alvey. How are you today, Simon? I don't know how the listeners feel, but I feel like I am Ken Uff. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, that's... Well done, well done. See, the thing is that, whereas Luke is... And I understand, you know, it's very exciting. You know, and I, I, I realise I started by sounding cynical there. You know, it, it is genuinely really exciting to have uh, not scarcely back in the Football League. And, you know, obviously, if you're a fan, particularly... My, my, my feeling as an Ipswich supporter uh, back in the Championship after a similar length of time is, I'll be honest, abject fear, not because, um, because everyone is sort of very, everyone's feeling very optimistic about Ipswich and saying, you know, they might be, you know, there's a chance at back-to-back promotions and they've made very good signings and we've held on to a manager and there's lots of very positive signs and everything. So I have a horrible feeling that it's going to start badly. And you've been winner. psychologically wounded by Finiti George, haven't you? So I just, to be honest, I've just been the thing is, I've been psychologically damaged because when when I when I followed it switch more closely than I do now, which is when I was still living in Suffolk and still at home, you know, every year that would be like, this is Ipswich's year for promotion. You know, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna really push on, and then you'd get the turn around and we'd have sort of either just scraped into the playoffs and then losing the semi-final, seemingly usually to West Ham, which I don't quite know how that was possible, but it seemed to always be West Ham. Um, or we'd finish 12th and be a complete non-entity. Um, so I just, look, I, I I don't want Ipswich back in League One. So I, I genuinely would feel hot fine if te- if we're safe 10 games, um, 10 games by the end, by te- with 10 games to go. Um uh- Partly How are you I feeling think, about Leicester in the Championship, Will? Cool. Uh, do you want to finish? That, uh, no, I was just going to say, partly because if we did, I, I really worry if we did somehow accidentally, you know, we ended up in the Premier League by mistake. Uh, I, I fear Derby County's record could end up in, in, tr- <laughs> in trouble. Well, this is this is the most fascinating thing about the Premier League this season, which is Luton kind of... It could really go either way with Luton because that is going to be such a different experience for everyone. Um, I mean, like, they've literally, they're not playing the first week of the season because the ground alterations are still being done. But that's going to be a real claustrophobic, you know, 
FA Cup third round feel for all for most of the other sides playing against them, and they are a somewhat physical side. It might be worth saying. So it'd be really interesting to see, like, can they do enough to really discover Premier League sides, or will they go straight back down? I mean, quite spectacular style. Style. Because um, I know I remember, like, you know, we we were talking about Guardians for the weekly before we started, like. There were, um, they, I think it was they who beat Sunderland in the playoff semi-finals. And like, the, the, the Sunderland fans were like, oh, we're not sure if we get promoted, whether that will actually be a good thing um, for the reasons you were saying, Simon. Um, obviously, promotion is not an issue Leicester had to worry about last season. Um, came, came real when I went, went to sign up for uh, fantasy football and I could no longer put down my favourite team. Well, I mean, you, whoa, whoa, I, think, whoa. I think you've got a reasonable chance of going straight back up. You can put down some pretty canny um, businesses transfer window, and you have, by all accounts, a, a, a manager with a very good reputation, although not much of a record. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I... I mean, I wouldn't pretend to be the most, you know, die-hard Leicester City fan. I, I, I kind of got a bit burnt out because the, it was so clear what was happening. The players didn't care. The manager didn't care. The owners let the manager who didn't care stay stay around for too long because they wanted to save ten million pounds. Versus, like, if you guys don't care, why should I? <laughs> um, like, you're being paid to care. Um, so, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I think the thing is, is that there's still a fair amount of the transfer window to go. So, like, you know, maybe that's less the slide for, uh, for the season. Maybe a bunch of other players will be sold. Well, um, I mean, who, though? Because you've lost Barnes, you've lost Madison, you've lost Tielemans. Wilkes, Wilkes is being negotiated. Who? Harvey Wilkes. Never heard of him. Well, Newcastle wanted. Oh, plays, okay. Plays on the left. I oh, mean, you, mean, ba- you mean you mean bar- you mean you mean Barnes? I mean, I do mean Harvey Wilkes. Yeah. So you just I, invented a player football. No, no, I, think, I think Harvey Wilkes does exist. I, I think he's like a Liverpool. I'm I'm, I'm confused. Different champ manager saved. <laughs> um, um, but yes, no, I do mean Harvey Barnes. So, um, we'll, we'll, I mean, one thing I do think James Madison has Spurs. That that feels right. Like he feels like in both a good and a bad way. James Madison feels yeah, he does. He does feel like a very Spursy type player. In that you'll get maybe half a dozen games where he's fantastic. Just rips teams apart, and then he'll be completely anonymous for the rest of the season, which is just very Spursy. Yeah, yeah. in in the yeah, he'll start the season in a really impressive way, and you go, "Wow, maybe he could be the story of the season." And then you look back in you look back in look back in in, in about January and realize he hasn't really done anything, and he's solidly mid table. No, 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 no. What you do just as you're about to realize that. He'll have a randomly good game, <laughs> and then he'll be able to coast off that for another ten games. 
Yeah, and somehow we'll still be in contention for Champions League qualification, although nobody quite knows how. <laughs> you can't tell them a bit better towards these players, can you? <laughs> <laughs> Just a uh, little bit. I mean, it's like Tiedemann's. The guy barely broke a sweat the past three years. Tell you what, it is interesting, because I think Brighton have clearly learned um, um, from our mistake. Because, like, the mistake Leicester made is when Brendan Rodgers came in, he was like, well, I'm a, I'm a big manager. I manage Liverpool. I manage Celtic. Um, I, I don't manage for a selling club. And so he basically made them keep all their good players rather than moving them on at the peak of their value, get new, young, hungry guys in to replace them. So the whole side stagnated under Brendan Rodgers. And what made it, obviously, what made it worse is he couldn't quite get us into Champions League football, which would have helped us make the next step up type thing. Um, so Brighton, no, Brighton are not doing that. Like, they are fucking going for it in terms of selling players. Because, um, like, they've already sold uh, McAllister. They're may sell Moses. They have sold Sanchez. Obviously, in, in January transfer window, they sold Trotard. Like, you know, like, it, it's the thing, you know, this is this is how they, they were successful, you know, you know, you, you, you keep the team moving, you keep it evolving, but, um, you know. There's only so long you can do that before you end up before um, basically the recruitment model fails and you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. Yes, but equally, if you cling on to these players, they all st- they all stagnate as well. Like that's true. You know, it's you know, call between you know, you know, call between a rock and a hard place type thing. Seeing as we're on football, can I can I flip the script? Yeah, I was gonna say, like... do you do you want to have your rant? Yeah. So I wanna I wanna have I wanna have a little bit of a rant here because Tottenham Hotspur, the 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 the, the team supported by a very good friend Miles uh, Miles Lester Harwood, who is I would hasten to add as disgusted by what I'm about to say as I am. Um so Tottenham Hotspur are trying to sell Davidson Sanchez, a Colombian centre back, to Spartak Moscow for fifteen million euros. Now, Spartak Moscow, as the name suggests, are a Russian team. Are, they? Ever... are, you, sure are you sure they're not an MLS team? Americans <laughs> do have a lot of towns named after European cities. Are, are, you, are we sure they're not actually the fighting team? All right, all right, all right. From Sierra Moscow. I was just laying out the obvious in case we have listeners that don't follow association football well. Or, or uh, no Russian geography. Or no Russian geography for that matter. <clears throat> so ever since the invasion of Ukraine... What, what does the word Spartak mean? <laughs> you go okay, on, I made a mistake. I apologise. <laughs> um, so ever since the invasion of Ukraine, UEFA, which is the governing body of European football... 
Um, what's um, football, and, Luke? And, 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 uh, well, you know, that's actually an interesting question. That's an interesting question. No, no, I, I, I hate to contradict you, but it also does extend into Central Asia and Israel for reasons we're not entirely sure. The governing body of European football plus the bits and pieces. <laughs> have, you, Gibraltar. You have, yeah, yeah, look at you, Malta. Have, um, have, you know, have sanctioned, have sanctioned both the Russian Football Association and um, Russia's, you know, domestic league. Sorry, 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 sorry. Thank you, you know what I would like to see at some point in UEFA? I would like to see like a UEFA dream game. Because, like, if you actually look at it, there's an awful lot of countries in UEFA that used to be run by Russia. And there's an awful lot of countries that used to be run by Britain. And, you know, we, we could have a game between, you know, mm. former colonies of Russia. You think, you, think, you think that would promote, like, international peace and understanding? Well, I just think, though, could, though, could we coach, like, the, uh, no, like the, the Irish... <laughs> the, the, the Gibraltans, the Maltese, well, no, because I think um, no, cause, Cypriots. Cause you, you, a much more interesting. If you're going to do that, more interesting than Britain, because although Britain had a vast empire, most of it was outside you. A team of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire would be very. Yeah, now that would that would that would be really like a Habsburg team would be really would be really interesting. Well, well, well yes, but but like a the that's a Habsburg. That's not Austria. Um, but we would mean you could get uh, uh, Van Hal, not, not Van Hal, but who's the uh, Rangnick? You could get Rangnick to coach him because he's going to be Austria's, Austria's team manager. Also, we may not want to get Germanic powers involved in this because if we let the Germans play, well, they, you know, they, they have various points occupied almost the entire continent. Um, so, anyway, so ever since the invasion of Ukraine, UEFA have. Uh, Sanctioned both Russian clubs and the, the Russian Football Federation in general. Um, Russian teams have been kicked out of European competition. Russia was kicked out qualifying for Euro 2024. Um, the UEFA introduced like a window in which um, non Russian players under contract to uh, Russian clubs could basically break those contracts and move to any other European club without that club needing to pay the Russian um, pay Russian clubs any kind of compensation. Um, and yeah, there, there, there has been an informal but very um, but very well enforced transfer embargo against uh, Russian clubs. Now partly that's, that's out of revolution at the invasion of Ukraine. But it's also to do with the fact that since Russia has been booted out of the SWIFT uh, banking network, it's very it's actually very difficult to to undertake any kind of transaction with any entity um, based in Russia. And this this is what fascinates me about the Davidson Sanchez thing. Just leaving aside the moral aspect of it, I'm sure we'll come back to that. I don't even know how Spartak Moscow proposed to pay Tottenham 15 million euro, given that I'm almost certain that Spartak Moscow don't have a bank account that's connected to international clearing. Like this is this is what this is why this is why when Russia was kicked out of Swift, all of a sudden Russian debit cards 
didn't work anywhere outside of Russia because it was impossible for a bank in another country to communicate with a Russian bank anymore. Because the what SWIFT is, is it's basically a huge clearinghouse for information because it's obviously too expensive, for, too expensive and too difficult for every bank in the world to make sure their accounts speak to every other bank in the world. So rather than do it that way, every bank just makes sure they can speak to SWIFT and SWIFT acts as a sort of electronic clearinghouse for, for um, transactions between banks in different countries. That's why picking a country out of SWIFT was considered like the ultimate financial sanction. And until the US did it against um, Iran and North Korea in the Obama administration, it had never been done before because um, various US administrations had thought about it, but they never acted on it because they wanted to keep the global banking system inside a computer network that they ultimately control. Um, and you can see, like, Russia has built like Keith Robinson workarounds to SWIFT that allow it to that allow Russian banks to interact with Indian banks, interact with Chinese banks, etc. So <clears throat> I'm really curious as to how um, Spartak Moscow physically proposed to pay Tottenham Hotspur 15 million euro. Because I am assuming I'm assuming what they'll have to do is transfer the money to a bank in China, India, probably maybe Dubai in rubles, and then Spurs would have to convert that money back into pounds sterling and transfer it out of the bank in Dubai. They would also presumably lose a huge chunk of the 15 million euro in converting it from rubles to euros to pounds because the, the ruble has collapsed in value in like on international markets. So, so I'd be really curious to know how they're actually physically going to do it. Of course, this is not the only trouble Spurs are in financially. Spurs' former owner, Joe Lewis, has been um, charged with insider trading in the United States. And it was described by Alvin Bragg, the uh, New York DA is the most open and shut case of uh, insider trading he's ever seen. By the way, there's a there's a good joke about that. So the judge sets Joe Lewis's bail at ten million dollars. Daniel Levy offers five million, and Joe wrote, "Yeah, yeah. I, I was very confused because I, I when I when I saw Joe Joe Lewis was in trouble, I was like, wow, didn't that guy used to be go used to be the person who everyone thought was going to be England's next goalkeeping hope about fifteen years ago?" No, this is the 86-year-old former owner of Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I'm just like I've always, I've always been, I've always been a, uh, a moderate defender of Daniel Levy, who's the chief exec and his sort of stewardship of Spurs. Because if you think back to the late 90s, Spurs were mid-table, were mid-table slash relegation candidates under Alan Sugar. They were going nowhere fast. Um, Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy have turned them into perennial European competitors and built what's probably the best football stadium in the world. And I also do have a grudging respect for the fact that Daniel Levy will pay what he will pay and not a penny more. 
um, for players. But the idea, the idea of right now, when every other team in Europe, every other team in Europe, has maintained this this informal blockade against Russian football, the idea that you should be the first club to violate that—it's just—it's—it's every—it's every—it's every negative thing anybody's ever said about Daniel Levy distilled into one story. Right, right down to trying to do business at the end of the season. Right there, yeah, right down to desperately trying to flog players at the last possible minute. And it's just... It's really, it's really depressing. And actually, it looks like Davinson Sanchez will save um, Spurs blushes because it looks like he's, he looks like he doesn't want to go. Well, uh, Davinson Sanchez has more, has more moral fibre than like the then, um, what is he Spurs is a club. I don't think it's more fiber, Luke. Like his wages would be would be subject to all these issues. Well, I mean, and also let's not be about the bush. He'd be a black player playing in Russia, which is which historically has not been a pleasant yeah, experience. I, I, don't, I don't think that'd be an issue now. He'd be, he'd be so beloved for for, for for coming for coming at this time. Also, but, like being. Like, oh live it, live. I, I, I don't live in Russia, and I know that footballers obviously live a slightly weird existence in places like that. But I can't imagine like the lifestyle in Russia is particularly pleasant at the moment. Oh well, yeah, quite. But yeah, I mean, I just wonder whether, like, because you mentioned he's Colombian. Like, is there an issue? Is the, you know, is the agent like a third party owner or some description? Does the agent have a back channel? Because yeah. you know South America, you know a lot of you know the the third world. He's you know, funny enough. It's on their lines. Who would have thought it? Um, yeah, but the, yeah, but the thing is that they don't want to be they don't want to be subject to secondary sanctions. So by and large, they are, they do go along with U.S. financial sanctions on Russia. That's been fraying increasingly, though. To be fair, not so much with China, with India. With the Middle East, not so much to my knowledge with Latin America, but I could be wrong. Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. I um, yeah, like again, like like you say, like the logistics of it, like forget the morals. Um, just the logistics <laughs> of them really seem to make much sense. I do think it's interesting that, you know, it's not what we're going to talk about in detail today, but like. It is slow going uh, for the Ukrainians at the moment. There is a question, you know, just, you know, the, the, the sheer weight of the backlash that was made against Russia last year, how long that can, can sustain. You know, the Olympics are next year. You know, the, the already the, the ban by athletics has kind of been made a bit silly. Yeah. Um, we'll even that hold. There are some court cases knocking around about what happens to former Russian players that were basically left stranded by the various measures UEFA took. So, like, it is, you know, this may not be the thing that causes it to kind of change, but like. But it could be the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, it's, it, it, does, it does feel like. Yeah, the, the, to quote John Prescott, the tonic plates are shifted. I mean, while, while we're on the subject, do we want to talk about the, the other the other well, murderer? No, you just, you just stood on my uh, okay. segue. Because talking of the tonic 
uh, plate shifted. Uh, yeah, Sullivan, what, what do you make about the Saudis saying, we have lots of money and we, we would like to spend it on any old players that you've got lying around? It's, it is slightly incredible, really. I mean, the, the question at the heart of this, I think, as you say, any old players, I mean, let's go through the list of some of the players that have, have made, have decided to take a lot of petrodollars. Um, you've got um, Riyad Mahrez, uh, James Madison, not James Madison, he's gone to Tottenham, as far as I know, that's not a murderous regime. That's, I mean, that's just other crimes. Uh, I obviously met Jordan Henderson. Um, you've got, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo, who went there last year. Uh, you've got Stephen Gerrard, who's gone there as a manager. You've got... Um, there's a lot of players that sort of ben, just... Ben, Benzema, <laughs> Kante. Um, yeah, yeah. Kante. Uh, yeah, Willian uh, has just... Willian looks like he's on his way from Fulham. Now, to... Willian's an interesting story because there's been a few players for Fulham that the Saudis have suddenly gone after over the past well, week to 10 days. Because Marco Silva has, has ended up being becoming a manager at one of the Saudi clubs. No, he, he rejected it. Oh, did he? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I obviously no, he, he rejected it. I think that cl- classic thing of I read a story on Sky, in a pub on Sky Sports News and then. Didn't follow it up. But the interesting thing is, is when that, um, well, the interesting thing to that is, is that Tony Khan, who owned, whose family owned Fulham and who himself owns a pro wrestling promotion called All Elite Wrestling, he read his mouth about the Saudis about two weeks ago, making joke, making jokes about, well, not jokes, but like making a flippant remark about how when you've got so much money, you can get away with anything, even killing people. And since since then, it certainly seems like the Saudis have it in for Fulham and just want to try and uh, buy as many players from Fulham as they possibly can just to fuck with Tony Khan. And of course, coincidentally, uh, the Saudis are in business with Tony Khan's competitors in the wrestling industry, World Wrestling Entertainment. Well, I mean, this this is... I think this is what this is all about at the end of the day. It's not about football. It's not about sport. It's not even about bread and circuses. It's certainly nothing to do with diversifying the Saudi economy. It's Mohammed bin Salman trying to prove that everything is for sale. That, that, he, that, he, can, that, he, can buy, that he can buy whatever he wants and that your, opinion, your opinions are him will change because he can offer you money. He's in charge and you're not, basically, because he's he's considerably richer than Yao, to use the old um, Harry Enfield um, character. It's like he owns... He owns owns the most expensive painting in the world. It's a Michelangelo painting of Christ, which, of course, he can't hang anywhere. He can't do anything with it because it's Saudi Arabia but he owns it just because he owns it just because it is the most expensive painting in the world and he can pay for it it cost him 300 million quid he spent so there's a really it's some really interesting thing that sorry just to sort of talk about the painting um maybe 
firstly, it's Leonardo and not Michelangelo, but also oh, sorry, which, yeah. okay. which makes it a lot more rare because there just aren't that many. Like there are, like obviously, Michelangelo, a Michelangelo painting would still sell for absolute tons of money, but there just aren't that many Leonardo paintings because partly because the guy did so much. Um, secondly, there are significant rumours it might not be. It's a, it's an oh, it might be fake. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, basically, I think so. And that's an open debate within art historian circles. But thirdly, um, they think it might be on his yacht, which obviously is some floating mega palace. <laughs> um, but nobody knows. Um, and, you know, I think the thing, the thing to re realise about Saudi Arabia, and there was an excellent long read in the Statesman a couple of weeks ago um, about all of this, the the sport bit and we're basically buying global golf and you know bid, trying to bid for the 2030 world cup and the saudi pro league and the fact and the saudi grand prix and, and you know the sport stuff obviously that's the thing that gets a huge pile of coverage because people pay attention to sport you know but the thing you have to realize is that they just have a lot of money like the amount of money they are spending on the Saudi Pro League or on Newcastle United, which obviously for legal reasons, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia and the government of Saudi Arabia are different things. Except, and that is in, except in other league, for other legal reasons in America, when they said that they were the same. Yeah, exactly. But like the amount of money they are spending on stuff is just absolutely insane. So Neon, they're slightly mad, they're, they're, they're baffling kind of renewable city of the future thing, <laughs> which may or may not happen i'm not gonna make any claims either way um has currently got an, ex an estimated cost of half a trillion dollars that's so, just simon I, I've, I've just i've just taken a little trip to the future it won't <laughs> well this is this is why this you know this is why saudi arabia is i mean it's grim and it's awful and it's Look, they've got to, they're hosting the 2029 Asian Winter Games at Neon, so you know, but like it is a you is that the amount of money in Saudi Arabia and the amount of money in the public investment fund is so vast that they are just able to just go, well, we'll give it a go and we'll see what happens. And the Saudi Pro League might. Be as the Chinese Super League was 10, 11 years ago. It might be like the first version of soccer in the United States. Basically, a, a retirement home for um, ex-pros uh, that never really goes anywhere. But Or it might, or it has a 10% chance of being in the Champions League in 15 years' time. And it's worth taking that risk because they've got that amount of money and that's their attitude to, to kind of to everything at the moment. And that is... That's kind of the Saudi thing. That's just the amount of money they are spending on stuff in a world where no one else is spent. I think it's really notable to say that we talk about Saudi Arabia and sport uh, to contrast it with what's happening with the Commonwealth Games. Well, well, where... Before you get into the Commonwealth Games, I think that's the interesting thing. It's right. The, um, the thing, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm torn on all this. Because it's gross to see MBS spunk all this money up the wall. Um, you know, like, it's the old joke, isn't it? You could do some real good with that. 
But like, we we've been spunking money up the wall when it comes. Like, no, if you look at your no, before the Saudis came and started doing this, all the European leagues were moaning about the Premier League and how the Premier League was distorting um, uh, uh, European football because our you know, the past really the past 10 years, but particularly since the pandemic and like the body blow that gave the European leagues, we have just raced ahead of them in terms of the amount of money that's pushing around the Premier League. Like you are literally getting teams quite a way down the Premier, the Premier League, being able to outbid top Italian um, German sides. And I don't know, like, is this a bit sour grapes? Like, is yeah, it a bit, but... is it a bit like, no, 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 we said it was the world's game. We said it was open to everybody. Well, actually, what we meant was, you can watch us play with all the toys. That actually, this was, no, football is the world. We, when we said football is the world's game, we were lying. What we actually meant was, it's the game for Western Europe, and Brazil, Argentina, two sides are often led by their, you know, their more lighter skinned citizens rather than their darker skinned citizens. And fuck you, world. We're, we're really unhappy now that you're starting to play with our toys in a really obvious way rather than basking in our brilliance. It, it... But, but I mean, just, but I mean just, to, just to put the opposite case, well, the, the, the prem, the, you know the Premier League. The, I, I I I take your point about the Premier League being in such a dominant position that it's maybe damaging the overall competitiveness of European football. But the Premier League got there by marketing it by a inventing and b marketing the hell out of a superior product. Not necessarily in terms of football itself was better, but the the spectacle on television was better. Like, you go back and watch, like, Italian football from, like, the early 2000s when I was watching it on Channel 4. There's, like, four, there's, like, four camera angles. Whereas you watch a game, you watch a game on Sky at the same time, there's, like, 30-odd camera angles. The, the way the Premier League embraced television meant that it just looked better on TV. So... There may be too much money in the Premier League, but the Premier League acquired that money by being a superior product. This is just the Saudis spaffing money, like you said, just spaffing money up the wall. Well, again, but like, again, though, like you take, so like, why is it <laughs> that there was none of these moral qualms about the Premier League selling rights to Middle East dictatorships? Like, money has been coming into the Premier League by selling TV rights. And in fact, the, the thing that held up the, 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 the purchase of Newcastle wasn't human rights. It was piracy because the Qataris and the Saudis were arguing over these rights. And the Saudis retaliated by actually have by running, basically running pirate pirate stations to undermine uh, BN, which is the big guitar um, TV station. Um, I don't know. Like again, like we mentioned, the Chinese league. There was partly because it wasn't to this big scale, partly because it was further away. 
partly because it was less organized but like there wasn't this kind of rabid fear about about it and I, and like this is this is difficult with Saudi Arabia isn't it because we know it, it is you know a fairly squalid dictatorship in terms of the Saudi regime but like it's not a country without meaning to lots of people in the West uh, you no, know, it is. You know, it's you know, it's it's the you know, what's the guardian of the two holy sites of Mecca and Medina. Like, this is a city, this is a country that actually means a lot to people in Britain and other Western European countries. And how no, how do we balance? How do we get the? How do we strike the tone line between saying we're a bit uncomfortable with this and recognise that actually. I think people get a, some people get a bit offended with how quick people are to get angry at the, at the idea that people should do business with Saudi Arabia. That's a reasonable. It's a reasonable point. Particularly when and, until until they started playing with our toys, they were our allies. You know, we sold them weapons. We sided with them on foreign policy disputes. We still, we still well, we, I mean, we, uh, we still, we still, we still, we, we still might do. even be about to deepen it if you believe the rumors about Biden and his security chief. I mean, yeah, we, 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 we won't get into that, but that, that potential deal is nuts. It's insane. But I don't know, like, I started to feel this a bit during the Qatar World Cup. And I also, and like, I, the Qatar World Cup was silly. Qatar... Qatar's a tiny emirate. It's far too small to 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 host the World Cup. Those stadiums are going to be uh, you no know, gigantic white elephants. But no, Saudi Arabia is a real football country. Like you know, I think it was like 1990. It's first qualified for for a World Cup. Um, you know, it you no, know, it did play well at the last World Cup. Um, why is this any different to? other big pushes to get good leagues in underdeveloped countries. You no, know, Simon mentioned America. You could, you could also cite Japan with the J-League, which was very top-down and did the same thing of signing uh, big-name players for inflated contracts from Europe. And, you know, obviously, it does go in, this is a big thing that's been done with Jordan Henson. It comes down to, like, the moral issues. But the reality is... With maybe the exception of Turkey, if you squint, there is no Muslim majority country that has our liberal social values, you know, liberal social values that did not exist in most of Western Europe 20, 25 years ago, and are still pretty contentious in a lot of the broader West. If you include, I know, if you include Eastern Europe and the American South. Um, so are, are we saying that only what Western Europe, bits of South America, North America, South Africa, only those countries, Australasia, Japan, only those countries get to host major tournaments that like India, that you know the Muslim world, you know China. That you know, well, that's what between those, that's what three, three and a half, four billion of the world's population that can't host what is what is called the world's game. And, and like maybe we are, 
But like that isn't what we were saying to people until people started to call us on this whole world game uh, claim. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can see where you're coming from up until a point, Will. But, you know, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't, pub, we haven't publicly beheaded people in quite a long time. We don't, we, yeah, but that, you that's know. because you did it with election. Yeah, we, we, we don't, we don't, we don't, we, you know. Boris Johnson, as much as I'm sure he would have liked to, did not go around murdering critical murdering journalists who were critical of him. Yeah, no, he didn't get away with murder. It was just beating them up. <laughs> it was just beating them up. Yeah. No, um, saying you'd arrange for other people to beat them to get it <laughs> Um. So I, I, I do get the point you're making, but. I, I think you've got to be careful not to go too far in the other direction as well. Yeah, and, and this is what like, I'm generally taught. It's like, it's like Jordan Henderson, right? <laughs> lots of money. Like, we can all say he's a very wealthy man and he should be, you know, he has enough money to turn this down. But, like, if you believe the rumors, it's like 700,000 a week. Yeah, and, but. And, yeah, and, 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 like, Again, like, uh, I've read there's a really good article in The Athletic from their Liverpool correspondent who's, I can never remember how to pronounce her name. I think it's like, it's like, it's like something beginning, but it's like the O'Neill, something like that. And, and like, she was talking about how much he meant to her um, because, you know, she had struggled with her sexuality and being out at the football. And that actually having... Having him as you know as a spokesman meant a lot, and it feels like he's betrayed her. And I can I can really understand that. And I think the fact that he's not been able to he's not he's not said anything. I'd highly imagine he's not able to say anything because the Saudis wouldn't want this being lamp uh, lampshaded. Um, like I cannot imagine how desperate you would feel as a. No, a gay, bi, trans, queer uh, Liverpool fan who, like, what Henderson said to have your captain say stuff like that um, really meant a lot to you. However, let's be real here. Lots of gay, bi and trans people go on holiday to places where homosexuality and being trans are, is illegal. Um, you know, lots of people... Don't think, no, no, don't boycott these regimes that are treating, uh, you know, gay, bi, trans people, um, you know, in those countries awfully. They don't boycott them. You know, like Trinidad is, is uh, very moderate by the standards of the Caribbean when it comes to homosexuality. But I, every time I went on, went um, on holiday to Trinidad, homosexuality was illegal. You know, I, I feel like these things are a bit more complicated than people are saying. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't. Because again, like, are we saying that no British player should ever go and play for a play in a Muslim majority yeah. nation? Like, is that, is that what we're saying? I just think that, I think that we can, like, everyone has 
moral red lines. And when it comes to work, that's always a complicated question. I just think that A, Saudi Arabia isn't just a another Islamic nation. You know, the brutality of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, what the sort of things that you can be put to death for, the you know, those, those sort the, the, the sort of nation state that Saudi Arabia is, is not just, you know, another, you know, I think, you know, if you said I'm not going to go and work in any country where LGBT rights are not fully observed, um, that would be very difficult. If you were going to say I'm not going to go and work in a country where the de facto ruler ordered that a journalist was cut up with a bone saw in, in, in our consulate, you really only have to not play in Saudi Arabia. You know, this is not some kind of, you know, I think Saudi Arabia is in a pretty... It, it is, I mean, it's not a uniquely evil country, but I mean, I think, you know, you can always, your moral relative. But like, again, we were talking about Russia. Now, Russia, until the, the invasion of Ukraine, was a fully integrated part of European football. Yeah, it was hosting Champions League games. It was hosting the World Cup five years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, and it's, not, and it's not exactly than games to be LGBT in Russia and you know all the stuff about killing dissidents overseas in other in other countries is as true of Russia as it is of Saudi Arabia. Yeah and, no. and, and you know, it was just it was just normal for players to go to move between Russia and other European leagues. I, I think yeah I look I, I get it. I get that there are Difficult country, you know, that, yeah, Russia is, is and Russia, the reason that it was never as much of a moral issue in Russia is, like so much about Russia, they didn't have as much money as the Saudis did. And though they did, at least they didn't keep it at home, you know. Um, you know, so they were signing Aidan Megidi and not Cristiano Ronaldo. And the, I think Aidan Megidi is did a, have some big, like, they, it wasn't, no, nothing's been displaced in terms of Saudis. Because um, actually, I mean, I don't know if you know, Simon, Luke may have read this. Do you know the model the Saudis have done? Because well, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. It's, 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 they've, they've taken, they nationalised the four leading clubs yeah. in the Saudi league. And they're, buy, they're basically particularly buying them a lot of great players. I think the idea is they're going to buy some player. They're going to help all the, all the teams. Have at least some good players, but those four are going to particularly buy good players for. So there's a sense of competition. Yeah, it does. I mean, it is. It is. It's an interesting. If you're going to have a model that is quite so artificial, you do need to have a sort of four. You do need to have you know four teams. You know, you don't. You don't want a situation such as the situation we seem to be heading to in England, where there's basically only one team can win every year. But um, I, I think it's a bigger like. I think this is also, I think it's worth pointing out this is a bigger concern, which is like Saudi Arabia is the only bit of the global economy, as far as I can tell, that has any money at the moment. And so we are in a really, you know, if we are heading into a Saudi century, and that's the sort of most extreme we're version not, of. We're not. Well, you know, they're the only people who've had any money, you know. I, 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 I think uh, this is. I'll make you bet right now, Simon. We're as, you're, as like, you're as likely to see 
the fall of the House of Saud and the collapse of Saudi Arabia in the next 10 years, as you are to see Saudi Arabia emerge as a major as a major economic power. This is a country with deep um, social, political, and actually economic and actually economic problems, given that its economy because this this is the thing. Until Mohammed bin Salman like released the PIF to go and invest in companies outside of Saudi Arabia, the PIF just functioned as a massive um, as a massive rainy day fund. And there's a very and, and there's a very good reason for that because this has happened before. Like in the seventies, in the seventies, the Saudis were um, were sensible enough to realize that if you unleash all these petrodollars into your economy, and if you unleash them into the broader like international <laughs> economy, all you're going to do is drive inflation. Meanwhile, across the Straits of Hormuz, the Shah of Iran was doing was doing not exactly, but something very similar to what Mohammed bin Salman was doing now, which is spending like you wouldn't believe in like crash industrialization, crash modernization, even even um, even in terms of sports washing. So like Iran hosted the Asian Games in like 1977. Um, and the effect the the effect of that is a you are reliant on oil prices staying stable or ideally going up, but b you surge inflation into your economy and you create all kinds of bottlenecks. Um, it's, it's it's not just that, is it? Like it creates yeah. it does weird things socially. So. You get revolutionary rights and expectations because you're, you're you're inciting people with the possibility that you might be really liberalising, um, and so people stop pushing you to do more. You worry social conservatives that you've kind of lost touch with with you know with the traditions with the way things are meant to be, so they start to get very nervous. You know, like. Saudi, like most of the Middle East, still has an issue with too many young people. Um, that is I mean, I mean, the, the 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 difference between Saudi Arabia now and Iran in the seventies was um, you have you haven't got this you haven't got this like crash urbanization. Saudi Arabia is already a very urban society, um, but it means Saudi Arabia has had a we you know we know this. Saudi Arabia has had a problem with political and religious extremism since, well, whenever you care to name. That problem has that problem has not gone away. It's it's been elided, but it's been elided by very good PR on the part of Mohammed bin Salman. And actually, a lot of the sports washing we're talking about isn't really to wash the reputation of Mohammed bin Salman. It's to distract. From any broader discussion of the stability <laughs> and viability of the house itself the, um, as a political institution, I think, I think it's, it's a bit just motivated by jealousy. Like again, because this gets back to you know the kind of broad stance a lot of people are taking because. Obviously, we have had Dubai 
and to a lesser extent Abu Dhabi as this as these have places to go in the Middle East for quite some time. And like and I think they're weird because like they almost emerged fully formed to the West. Like they had been like growing you know, bit bit by bit by bit, becoming a bit of like an entertainment cultural hub in like the MENA area. And then it was like, oh my god, you know, Dubai, my god, I've got this wonderful airport, this wonderful Yeah, and I, and I mean the thing is Dubai is Dubai is in a Dubai is in a terrible um, financial position. It's had to be bailed out by the rest of the Emirates. Well, but I mean, you you have the brilliant thing of you know their Tower of, of Babel, because you know, obviously like Dubai is like the little bubble of Abu Dhabi. It's like what was meant to be their crown of achievement, that huge tower, ended up having to be named after the ruler of Abu Dhabi, which yeah. must burn so <laughs> so much. Um, like that's like you know renaming the uh, Palace of Versailles. Cardinal Wilhelm's uh, Casa Dojo house. Well, quite. I mean, I mean, come on. The the the, the German em- proclaiming the German Empire and like the French king's pleasure palace. I always thought that was a really good big move, to be honest. Yeah, but like that was one day, and the, it, the French never got over it. That's there <laughs> every day. Like the, the Dubai ruling family go by that stadium. So that that uh, that building. Actually, let's go back directly because I think it's an important point. I think this is the thing, isn't it? Because I, I would go with you. And, and, uh, right. um, you, I, you meaning me or you meaning son? I mean, I, I'd go with you. Like, I, you know, this, this, is, this is the type of behavior that is, that is, is uh, inviting a, a, an appointment with, a, with a, your nearest lamppost at some point. Um, and, and, like, you know, look, even the football side. This is a silly thing to do. Because like the Saudi Arabians have a good side. They did well in the World Cup. And I don't think and like I personally don't think it's reasonable to say no to them hosting the World Cup. Because again, like they're a real football country, international <laughs> tournaments often go to kind of scuzzy places. And they'd be far better just carrying on like developing their own players because you know what's going to happen is all those promising Saudi players aren't going to get a chance to play because the league's clogged up with all these Europeans and European based players looking for one last big payday and then it does the broader thing like look who knows when we're actually going to pivot away from carbon-based fuels? But it is going to happen at some point in our lifetimes. And at that point, the Saudis are fucked. Now, they, they don't need to be fucked because they're a very empty country in a very hot place in the world. I mean, they are they are, and they aren't. Because like Simon was saying, the, the PIF in theory, should have enough money in it to, to, to see them through the next couple of centuries. Well, we, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, in terms of having money coming in, yeah. You know what they should be doing is actually the stuff that twenty thirty initially talked about, which was you know, we are going to try and be one of the world leaders in solar. Solar. Now, I remember us talking about this at the time. 
obviously not going to happen. Obviously, something they don't really have any interest in. And yeah, like it just feels like this is just, you know, they've got a young, vigorous leader for the first time, first time pretty much since the nineteen twenties. Um, yeah, and he doesn't want to be kind of like the embarrassing uncle, the funny duddy uncle that the West kind of, you know, cowtows to in private, but then pretends they don't like in public. You know, he wants the recognition. He wants to take his seat at the table, and I think it's 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 a bit like the Iranian nuclear program. I think I think we've got a lot of evidence that most Iranians hate the current regime. They don't necessarily hate the nuclear program because they are nationalistic enough to go, well, why shouldn't Iran have nuclear weapons? Iran's a big country. Israel has nuclear weapons. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Why can't Iran have nuclear weapons? And I, and I do feel like maybe we should just be a bit chill. And, and and look, and actually, and this is when I'll end on, then let Simon make for the Commonwealth. Um, maybe this is just chickens coming home to roost because, like, look, at the end of the day, you know, you remember um, um, when Don, Don Ravi went to the UAE during the 60s, no, sorry, the 70s. You know, English football could have a straight face say, um, you know, what about your loyalty to your nation, blah, 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 because, you know, English football kind of was built just about on such principle, or certainly was, didn't openly betray you to such a point it was ridiculous to pretend you believed in them. You know, can you really say to any player, how dare you could go to the place that's paid you the same amount of money, you should continue playing for Newcastle, or about the South is. You should continue playing for Chelsea until recently owned by a literal Russian governor. Um, you should continue playing for Manchester City, owned by an Emirati. You know, several um, other Premier League clubs owned by rather dubious American businessmen. You know, like actually, you know, you 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 pay gold, you get mercenaries. Yeah, actually, before we before we move on, I just wanted to ask you, Will, is there any update with the the Saudi partnership with the WWE? Anything interesting to report? You know what? It's really interesting because those shows used to be awful. They used to be awful to watch, except for the fact they had really comfortable chairs. Because, like, obviously, like in European sports, the movers and shakers are quite a far away from the action. They're in their complementary boxes. And, like, I don't think the Saudis have got the memo. So, like, all the movers and shakers were at ringside. And so you just had these really ornate, really comfortable chairs around ringside. And, like, clearly people treated it like you would watching football in an executive box. You know, getting up, they were talking to people, they were having meetings. And, like, it was really distracting. And the atmosphere was really bad. Because we'd been going for so long, they've actually built, like, it feels like they've built an organic fan base. Like, now they can run these shows. And the Saudis do 
they do react like a like a Western crowd would. Um, so like it's it's quite interesting. Like it, it's now it doesn't have the like a negative effect for the consumer that it once did. You know, if you're watching on TV, they've still not gone fully back to doing the full on Saudi propaganda. Like you know, what happened to Joggy Rito has caused WWE to kind of tone down now. But yeah, otherwise that deal's going strong. Um, they're still getting their fifty million dollars a show. I think there were rumors they'll be back in November. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's weird, you know, like um I think the thing is like the thing I like again, like I think the most worrying thing for Saudi stuff is the fact that Jordan Henderson couldn't say anything to the LGBTQ fans, given the fact that he'd done so much before now. He couldn't even do, like, a face-saving statement. Now, maybe his PR people said, you know, there is nothing you can say, it will only make things work, no bother. But the worry would be that not only has he taken this money, but he's not allowed to say anything because that would be embarrassing for his new, his new employers. And to me, that's the thing that worries me more, just reminds me of what I'm about to say to Simon. Like the Saudis aren't the only place in the world with money. Like lots of places in the world have money. Like the Americans, you know, they, they are they are hitting records oil production, for example. Um, the problem is, is that owning a football club just isn't the way to make money. And you know, and that's why it's rather odds American businessmen who think that they can get rid of promotion and relegation. And it is, you know, Middle Eastern, um, you know, basically Middle Eastern playboys who want to fast, who want something that's a bit more impressive than a big yacht or a fast car to play with. Um, because I think most people in Britain and Europe have kind of been like, actually make money with a football club, given the way the economics work. Sorry, um, so, so yeah, let me, um, I think briefly then, um, what I think we are seeing is that the only part of the world that is willing to really invest in sport at the moment is, is other Middle Eastern nations. And the sort of a classic example of this, I mean, I, is, is, is the Commonwealth Games, which is, I, I have a feeling that at some point it's going to stop you know, it's it's over. It's over. You know, um, the 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 running and the having the running around the running around and jumping event on the basis of countries that Britain used to own is has always been a slightly silly idea. But no one wants to do this anymore. Um, you know, global sporting events cost generally cost a lot of money because nobody wants to have a major global sporting event that doesn't isn't bigger than better than the last one um and so and and, and governments um particularly in countries like australia or canada um are just kind of going yeah actually turns out our taxpayers want to spend want to spend their do their dollars on schools and hospitals and roads and stuff like that and selfish not on bastards. a um, sorry selfish bastards i mean 
I, look, I suppose if you if you're a world if you're a if you're a world leading netball or lawns bowls lawn bowls player, this must be disappointing. But for the rest of the world. The Commonwealth, what is the point? Like, the Commonwealth Games is like a rubbish version of the Olympics. Yeah, it's just, and we expect these places, and it is a problem, and actually it's a problem, and I'm never, ever, ever, ever likely to say something nice about the IOC again. So, you know, it is a problem that the IOC is coming close to actually accepting. If you look at the plans for the next three Summer Olympics, uh, which are to be held in Paris, Los Angeles, and and Brisbane, all of them are built around existing facilities. So Los Angeles has redeveloped, but will be using the LA Memorial Coliseum that was hosting the Olympics in 32 and 84. The uh, Paris Games next year will be built around the Stade de France. And the 2032 Games, which will be held in Brisbane, um, are going to be built around the Gower. There's only going to be 50,000 people at the opening ceremony in 2032. It's a much... They've kind of accepted now, look, the the era of, um, you know, basically forcing the government of Greece or, and allowing the government of China to throw up massive white elephants has kind is it looks like it might well be over in the Olympics. Um, and I think we have to hope that, you know, other international sporting bodies maybe get the message that actually the bird putting a burden of financial responsibility to host these massive events is kind of a losing game because only a few countries in the world, Saudi Arabia being one of them, are going to accept spending vast amounts of money for essentially a two-week festival. And like I like the Olympics. I think the Olympics is a really good thing. I don't think, but I don't think that having to, you know you know, having the Olympics in a brand new stadium is going to make it a better event. You know, to make it a genuine, an op, 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 open up the opportunity to people, you know, giving them the chance to say, yeah, you know what, refurbish a stadium you already got. You know, don't, you're not going to need to be expected to, you know, rebuild everything in that sense. Might just would be a good, might just be, you know, a good thing. Um, but yeah, the Commonwealth Games... So the 2026, um, not even bid, it was a, the, the candidate city. Um, you know, it was it was it had been decided it would be held in the state of Victoria. Um, indicative, I think, of how little people care. Um, the last time the state of Victoria, not even the nation of Australia, hosted the Olympic Games was 2000. But not the Olympics, sorry, the Commonwealth Games was 2006. Um, and then, as a sort of double body blow, the 2030 Games, the city of Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, which would be the first Canadian city to host since 1994, has now said, yeah, I don't think we can be bothered. And quite obviously, the, city, the Commonwealth Games Federation had kind of gone, OK, good, well, we've got a bid for the, the Commonwealth Games in 2030. We don't need to worry about it. It goes, to, like, there is, I think, a series that that event does need to have a sit, look at itself and work out whether it's, whether it's viable anymore. And if it is viable, what that what viability looks like. And I think that's true of, that needs to be true of the world, of things like the FIFA World Cup as well, which is most, one of the reasons it went to Qatar, one of the reasons that it went uh, to Qatar was that one of the few countries who were like, yeah, we will basically spend all the money in the world. No, no, that's not true. I mean, I think that is going to be true of the World Cup in the future, but no, no, FIFA had viable bids for the, the Qatar World Cup because the Americans wants them. 
this is, this is a whole thing about why guitar was so controversial. Because the reason why the guitarists had to be so aggressive with bribing everybody was because FIFA was against them. This is why it's re- like this is what this is what annoys Sam Blatter so much. Sam Blatter gets the blame, and FIFA gets the blame for the World Cup going to Qatar in 2022. It was nothing to do with Sam Blatter. He wanted to go to America. It was the Europeans that pushed Qatar over the edge because uh, the French government nobbled uh, Platini. Um, um, you know, because of the Qatar French commercial links. Um, you know, now, now, now with this new Super World is a real issue, uh, which is why that format is such a disaster. Um, one of the reasons why that format is such a disaster. But, uh, you know, back, back back in 2022, they did have a perfectly plausible alternative host, uh, which would be the Americans. Actually, Simon, I wanted to ask... Oh, sorry, sorry. You, you, you bring... Go on. I was going to say, I would, I would say, like, you know, I live in the West... I would live in the West Midlands, where Birmingham, obviously, was a previous host. Didn't exactly capture my imagination. I think there's an issue with the Commonwealth, which is, you know, how real can it be when Britain doesn't really do anything with it? Uh, you know, what what is the point of people kind of uh, you know pretending it's a real thing if Britain's not gonna give anybody anything for going along with the pretense? Um but like I think it is worth saying that this is an issue that like you're saying, like all sporting competitions are facing. Like if you know, look if you look at the the you know the European Championships, which you know, is a, you know in football, which is a major tournament, uh, they they for twenty twenty eight, they've only got one bid, which is the home nations and Ireland. Um, which Turkey and Italy are going to do twenty thirty two together. So there's really, I'm quite I'm quite I'm quite excited by that. By the way, it's going to be quite interesting how they handle the. Uh, who gets the automatic places in the UK? Well, no, no they, yeah. they've, already, they've, they've already said everybody's getting an automatic place. No, no. But the way you've heard that, it's not true. Yeah, I, I think that's that's yeah. There's, oh there's, no, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting confused with Canada. The yeah, USA. yeah. The, the no. maximum is free. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I don't know much about like the logistics of a Turkey Italy bid because like that's always been the problem with bids. A spread over other countries. I think there's quite a serious problems of, of Japan, South Korea, and also Poland, Ukraine. But I will say this: it's going to be the best catered football tournament <laughs> in the history of. Here. I mean, Turkish food and then Italian food. God, that's amazing. I mean, you say that they don't think they're that far away. You just think they're far away because they're far away by land. Yeah, but like, but like Simon was saying, even Poland and Ukraine, they were next to each other. Yeah, there but that's because terrorists. Ukraine's fucking huge. Like, you've still got the Balkans. You've got the Balkans in the way. Like, there's no, there's no direct border between. There's no direct yeah. border between Turkey and Italy. Yeah, but you just fly. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, it's, it, this is true, but and I'm it, maybe it'll be fine, but that, yeah, I mean, it is weird. You are getting these sort of weird Frankenstein bids, you know, five random countries, you know, well, you know across the these islands. The 2030 one, the World Cup, the one that's 
you have to think you're probably going to get it unless they can uh, unless they can persuade them to go for 2034. But like one of the leading bids is Saudi Arabia, Greece, and Morocco. No, yeah. uh, well, apparently that that's gone very shaky ground now. Apparently. Oh, why is that? Uh well, the 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 the, the Greeks look like they're they're going to drop out of that. I get the feeling that might not be a problem. I mean, like, well, the Saudis just go, "Oh, that is sad. Here's a pile of money." Well, no, because even even like even like this, this is how expensive it is. Even like I was reading an article the other day that said even the Saudis are starting to get like second thoughts about it. Um, just because just because like you say of how expensive it is, and they're not that keen to go it alone. To be honest. I think Which is in, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, that is insane. I think the World Cup is just is is a is too big when a country of the size and scale, you know, the, with the money of Saudi Arabia, goes hosting the World Cup, lads. That sounds like a bit of a problem. There's too many nations. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I I'm not as against expanding it as others, but actually, the more you think about it, like forty-eight, it's it's too many gates. It, well, it a doesn't go into. It doesn't work as a tournament number, but b it's just yeah, it's too many games, it's too many countries. Like it is, it is. Yeah, it's not. Not brilliant, but it's uh, just not. It's just not viable. I think the thing with the Commonwealth Games is, at some point, they're going to have to bite the bullet of if Britain. And by Britain, we mean the royal family. If they want these games to carry on, they're going to have to pay people to host them. There's going to have to be like, you host these games, you know, is 30, 40 million for your troubles type thing. Because like, like, even if you can keep scrounging up a British, Australasian, because they, they are basically the two places I wanted to host it at the moment. Yep. Even if you can scrounge up somebody in those two in those countries to host it, it doesn't look great, does it? You know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's it just keeps yeah bouncing back and forth between the UK and Australia. It's a bit weird, and that is basically what's happened since the turn of the century. Because because you gotta remember, like, okay, Australia and Canada are I think, pretty comparable in population. Australia is like much more sports maps. I mean, Canada's much bigger. Canada, you know, Australia's population is about 26 million. Canada's is about 38. That's what sounds like. I didn't realise there was that much. I think so. I, 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 that, does that number feel about... I feel that number feels... Yeah, I, I think, think that's, right, I think right. that's about right. For some reason, I thought Canadian, Canada's population was a lot less. Well, it... there, there, are, there, are at least two, there are at least two few people there now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, can, can, Australia twenty six point six million. Canada, I'm looking this up now because I like being right. Uh, yeah, thirty eight. You're you're dead on. Wow, that's that's a rare. That's rare. That's a rarity. It's all. It's almost as though Simon is Simon is deadly when it comes to general knowledge. Yeah, right? yeah, well, yeah. I should, I, I shouldn't. Uh... But I mean, I think it is interesting that, like, you know, Canada. Canada is an obvious candidate to host these, the something like the Commonwealth Games, right? It's got a number of reasonably large cities with you know stadiums that could do the job. It's a it's a well off country. It's got a decent population, and yet they've not really shown any interest in hosting this event at all. 
for a generation. I'm, 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 I'm curious, Simon, as the podcast resident Londoner, beyond the, beyond the London Stadium that West Ham now playing, yeah, you know, as the, the, the legacy of the 2012, because we, you're talking, we're talking a lot about white elephants. So I'm just curious, like, has any of the facilities that were built for, for the 2012 Olympics, are they being used? Has it regenerated that part of London? Is there a, like... I'm going to the copper box at the end of the month. Yeah, I, I actually think, yeah, I think this is it. I think if you are, like, um, the, 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 the Olympic, the swimming pool built by Zaha Hadid, not, not personally, but she designed it, that is now essentially a, pub, a public swimming pool. It's a slightly pricey public swimming pool, but hey, you know, how often do you get to swim in somewhere that's actually, you know, hosted Olympic champions? The Copper Box is still hosting events. Um, and then this is the thing, like they had a bunch of temporary venues, um, which obviously aren't doing very, didn't do very much. But a lot of the other permanent venues, like the Arch Rooms hosted at Lords, uh, the tennis was obviously hosted at Wimbledon. You know, a lot of the other venues for the London Games were actually, you know, were, ve- were major sporting venues anyway. Um, and it is certainly true that Stratford, Stratford is still a very, you know, lively. I wouldn't particularly, I, I, I find it a bit soulless personally, but it's, it's still, you know, it's, it's got thousands of people living there. It's got the stadium. It's a major public park around there. I think that it isn't unreasonable to say that there is regeneration in 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 uh, in that part of the world at the moment. To be honest, can I so the francophone French Union? It it has its own games, not as long lasting as uh, as the Commonwealth Games, but it does it does have it does have its own games. Do you know what they also include in addition to like sports? Wine drinking and cheese eating. No, almost. They include several performances, including song, storytelling, traditional inspiration dance, poetry, painting, photography, and sculpture. Is there, have you ever heard a sense of this? Or French? I mean, yes, that's very French, but I actually, I actually think that's kind of cool. Yes, everything the French do is kind of cool. This <laughs> is what makes them so infuriating. Also, their game actually started this week. Can you guess where they are hosting? Is it, is it Paris? Is it similar to the Commonwealth in that they're stuck oh, being... And, and I would imagine it's because the French are paying for it. To be fair, like, it does feel... So, like, the, the, the most recent games apparently has 3,000 athletes. That doesn't sound as many as the Commonwealth game. No. But I think the French... Are doing it a bit more on a budget. Um, I feel. Uh, let's let's see how many went to how many people, how many people went to Birmingham. There were. It, it is more in Birmingham, but it's five thousand basically. That's, that's a fair amount more. Um, uh, so so it is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which I think we can all agree, is a country that has no questionable activities or outstanding allegations against it. I mean, the clues are the name. It's the Democratic it's a Democratic Republic. Republic. It's not the undemocratic Republic of the Congo. <laughs> They've got to be a bunch of really I nice chaps. I mean, someone, come on, they have, a, they have a long and proud history of hosting major sporting events. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, yes, I, I, I would imagine, I would imagine that part of the issue is, you know, you do lose it, you know, it, it's a bit like what's happened in the Caribbean, isn't it? Like, you can't be running around trying to make things a hostile environment, trying to, uh, you know, close the border as tightly as you can and then get surprised when these other nations don't want to uh, yeah, it's your true. family. That's true. <laughs> anyway, um, what was meant to be the first two minutes of the podcast has gone on for 90 minutes. I get the sense we're not talking about the by-elections today. Well, like you said off air, they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. Do we want to talk about uh, Bob and I, but do we want to do we want to wait for that as well? I've got quite a lot to say about Oppenheimer. I don't know about you guys and Barbie. Yeah, it's difficult because I haven't seen, and I probably will. I will try and go and see Oppenheimer because I'm I am interested in. Well, I'm I'm interested in. Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. And 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 you know, Rachel, who I know listens to this, knows this. I am interested at least in Florence Pugh. Um, oh, yes, you should be. <laughs> With a lot of enthusiasm. Well, uh, yes, yes. Actually, <laughs> it was it was. So I had a chat to my mum on Monday, um, in which um, I, I said to her, "Oh, I'm going to see the Barbie movie on on Wednesday," um, and she was like, "And she, yeah, yeah, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm having, you know, um, you know, which will be a nice thing to do." And she's always, oh, you know, Margot Robbie, you know, and uh, you know, various things. I, I said, "Oh, you know, because I'm told it's very funny and interesting." And, and 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 then my mum went, oh, and Margot Robbie's not a bad-looking person either. I was like, well, if I was thinking about just from that perspective, I'd have gone to see Oppenheimer. <laughs> well, in that case, I think I think it's a new record for us. Yeah, on a metaphorical bombshell. We've only got beyond. The opening remarks, and now we have to end the podcast. That's um, excellent. I'm very, I'm very proud of us in some ways. I will say, I, I don't know if we're doing an, an, an Ashes podcast. I need to chase the guys and see if they want to do one next week. I will say, <laughs> as somebody who was a bit of a grump for the first two Ashes uh, games, the the next three were amazing, and. Obviously, it was very disappointing that the rain stopped England winning the fourth test. But, like, equally, the rain was what made that, that match really exciting because you just had this kind of... Like, look, if, if, like, it rains in football, they don't go, OK, well, actually, you've only got, you've got 20 minutes less. Like, this is a wonderful thing with cricket. Like, time is not constant. You know, the time will vary depending on the elements. Um... And the last day was intense because it did seem like the Aussies might <laughs> chase down the running the winning runs until they went off for rain, ironically. And England came back and like whatever they gave them during a rain break, you know, no, give that to them again because they 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 just blew the Aussies away. And I have to say, I thought he got Messed around something bit uh, by England uh, towards the end of his initial run in the test side. It was fun to see Bowen Ali, you know, 
really enjoyed his cricket in those last two games. Like, it's it's not really a sensible idea to bring, you know, like a retired spinner back on a week's notice. A week, you know, that he actually couldn't train for that much on because he was going down to the palace. So I think his dad was getting an MBE. Um, but like, Bowen, he did, he did really well with the bats in the fourth test. And he did pretty well with the bats in the, the, in the fifth test, particularly in Curtis Groin. And then he bowled beautifully in that last session after looking, because he was in pain, um, looking pretty ordinary on the fourth day. And then Stuart Broad, like, main counter energy in spades, you know, like, only one other player in history had ended their test, their test career, had ended their test batting career by hitting a six. And then he goes, and not only does that, he then takes a wicket with his last ball in test cricket to win the Ashes. And he, and he knew that he was about to be taken off, that this was like the last over of his spell. Like, that's... That's something special. Yeah, he's he's a remarkable player, and I think it'll be interesting to see how England do without him. Well, he's yeah. getting old, so like, I, I, well, I think, yeah, I think they'll be fine. But it, it, it's it's he's he's like he is a, he's an England great. He's not a world great, even though he's got six hundred runs. Like you look at his average. Not brilliant. He's not as versatile as Jimmy Anderson in terms of the different conditions he can bowl in. But in terms of somebody who just knew how to seize the moment, do you remember Luke? This is over a decade ago. We were going to see a movie. It may have been like the first four movie or the first Captain America movie, and England were playing, and it looked like that England were going to lose. And by the time we left the movie, Stuart Broad had ripped the heart out of the opposition in England World Course to like a really easy victory. I think it was I think it was Thor. Um, and he like he just did that every now and again, you know, like it was weird. Um but yeah, so you know, enjoy enjoy your retirement, Moen, uh, Moen Alley and Stuart Broad. And on that note. Oh, hang on! Can I? Can I? If you're going to plug an Ashes podcast, can I well, just I do plug a quick... anything? There is no podcast to plug, but uh, yes, you can plug okay. the podcast. So well, I, I can plug something after you. Yeah. So, um, Silo, the TV series I was reviewing with my co-host Alicia, season one of that is now finished. But in the build-up to the release of Dune Part Two in November. We are reviewing all of the. We're reviewing the first three um, Dune books, and then we're reviewing all the adaptations there have been, and there have been a lot. Um, so you can find that in wherever you get your podcasts at wool wool w o l w o o l shift dust, which is the name of the podcast. Um, and you can also find us on the Law Hound because we're now part of the Law Hounds Network. And I, I will put my city AM cover where I talk all about Nigel Farage and the Equality <laughs> Act. And I, I was very happy with the article. It was like, 
It was very article. good. It was like an article slash memo for work, just about how the Equality Act uh, applies to all this stuff with coops. <laughs> so I didn't, I couldn't send the article. Was one of the reasons why I wanted to write it was I felt Farage was playing the refs rather than actually trying to raise a. Know, raise the concerns in a genuine way. Like, I'm sure he felt he was being discriminated against because, you know, I, I just think that's in line with his personality. But, you know, rather than seeing how he could actually resolve this in a proper way, he was just stamping his foot and don't want to listen to him. And I think that annoyance may have came out of the common more than they expected because it, 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 it's a surprising I thought, which, you know, it does say Barrage deserves compensation. It does say that the NatWest CEO took complete leave of her senses to do what she did. Um, all the responses I got were people, you know, like on Twitter, were people saying, you hate Farage, why do you hate Farage? Why are you siding with NatWest? I'm like... Yeah, that wasn't, my, that wasn't my read of that article at all. I mean, yeah, it's... yeah, I was very surprised. Because, like... I think you were you. The point I seemed to make to me is uh, to me the, the the argument you made was like to some extent that NatWest should almost have played hardball a bit more than they did, but not that they were like wonderful. And I mean, the reality is that Nigel Farage, he's it's difficult, isn't it? Because he's like Farage has never won a you know he's never won a parliamentary election you know in this in the UK, um, as we know. And but he is he is very, very good at whipping up these sort of controversies. And he's very, very good at running individual campaigns like this. And partly because, and I think this has been mentioned before, he, he will be, he'll be booked by TV bookers because he turns up on time. He, you know, is as far as anyone, as far as I can tell. A very a guy who is genuinely, you know, polite and decent to, you know, everyone involved. Everyone involved, and you know, he he and he's and he's worth the money. You know, he's worth having the. I think as well. This this is. I think this one resonates a lot with the Tory government. Like I think I think people who are not, uh, who aren't Tories or aren't Brexiteers. Always assume that every Tory or every Brexiteer loves Farage. And like obviously I'm not a Tory, but I know the Tories I know. None of them particularly like Farage. I'm sure there are some Tories that like him, but look, the official Tory party has four Farage, like a wildcat, to keep them out of Parliament. Um, mm. um, particularly in 2017, where they basically broke every law. Uh, they no, 2015 where they basically broke every law available to them. Uh, well, they came very close to breaking every law available to them to keep them out um, in the in Thurrock. Um, Bannett. Thurrock oh, was Bannett. him. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Bannett. So, but like, I, you, I think you can just tell in a very organic way that this is the type of stuff that kind of gives the Knights of Sunak and hunt and chaps the EBGBs, the idea that as they you know if they may be about to go back into professional middle class environments if they may be about 
to be trying to work for banks or working for big corporations that um, they maybe shouldn't. And, and I think part of it is they're a bit American-built um, because obviously they know this has been a running controversy that's been ginned up in America. And, uh, you know, part of it is, is that they're struggling. No, we, we, if you run your election campaigns so that you get to ignore what the majority of working age people think because you win with pensioners, you can't be surprised if the place of work gets very liberal all of a sudden. <laughs> um, so yes, I think it, it will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. But, uh, have you got anything you want to plug, Simon? No, not but no, I have I haven't particularly. I really I feel I, this this stage always makes me feel like I should get a side hustle. Yeah. It's fine. I, I don't need a side hustle. I'm fine. That's well, I mean this this, this this is the side hustle. So what we've actually got is a side hustle to the side hustle. Exactly. Well, don't say it then. No, I said it. You guys didn't hear because you, you were talking over me. Good. I said, I... I, said, I said Rachel was a side hustle. No, no, oh! no let, me, let me let me be very clear. Rachel is more important well, than a side hustle. Oh, so yes. no, absolutely. You know. All right. So All right. Rachel, don't kill and me. And on that bombshell. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye.